0: Isaiah chapter 33, verses 20 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the majestic Lord will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams, in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships pass by. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Your tackle is loosed. They cannot strengthen their mast, they cannot spread the sail. Then the prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey. And the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks again for your perfect and inerrant word. To God, as we come now and as we sit and as we hear your word proclaimed, God, may your Holy Spirit open our hearts and our minds to receive your truth. You are our God and we are your people and in Christ's name we pray amen please be seated being Americans all the bibles talk about kings can seem strange to our ears It's not that we don't know what kings are or what they do. It's just that we kind of fought a war and established a nation specifically because we didn't want a king. We didn't want a singular authority telling us what to do. We preferred the tyranny of the masses versus the tyranny of a king. So when it comes to hearing about the kingship of Jesus Christ, the third office that our catechism question number 23 lists as the three offices of our Savior, it can seem a little uh, off-putting. It can seem a little strange to our ears. You know, The catechism question, what are the three offices of Christ? The three offices of Christ are prophet, priest, and king, those first two are pretty self-explanatory. Again, we understand how Jesus is a prophet. We understand that the whole word of our God is from the mouth of the second person of the Holy Trinity, that Jesus Christ's word is perfect, that it is without fault, and that it is for every minute part of our life. The office of priest, again we understand the nature of that in Jesus Christ, that he was and is the sacrifice for sin. They not only offered up himself, but he is that great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, that he is the one to whom we are to go to see not only the forgiveness of the curse of Adam, but the forgiveness of our individual sins. And so these two offices, prophet and priest, are near and dear to us. But again, this third office, this office of king, again, can, uh, can seem kind of less applicable to our lives. Again, how is it that Christ is king? How does that work itself out not only in the nation but in the church itself. well, here in our scripture lesson this morning from Isaiah chapter 33. We see the prophet Isaiah bringing forth to us a word of what the kingship of Christ looks like for the believer. Now again, whenever we come to God's word, it's important for us not to kind of extract it out and not understand, again, the wider context of, of what the prophet is doing. Again, you remember that the prophet Isaiah uh, was sent by the Lord our God uh, to preach in the court of the king of Judah. Now, unlike his contemporary uh, uh, Micah, who was around at the same time and preached kind of out in the cities and the byways, Isaiah had a unique opportunity He quite literally had the ear of the king of Judah. And the great trouble in the time uh, that Isaiah is preaching here in Isaiah 33 is the fact that the enemies of God in Assyria are planning to come and to destroy the southern kingdom. Now you'll remember in your biblical history uh, that the Assyrians have already taken out uh, the northern kingdom. That the ten tribes have been sent into exile, uh, that they have been dispersed into the four winds, and that the same fate is awaiting their southern brothers. And God in his mercy has sent Isaiah and Micah and others to warn this southern kingdom of what is going to happen if they do not repent of their sin and turn away from their idolatry and return into the arms of of the covenant Lord, this Lord who had brought them out of bondage in slavery in Egypt. And so the prophet Isaiah, again, bringing these words at the end of chapter 33, which again have followed uh, his prayer of deep distress. Again, Isaiah is deeply troubled by the message that he has been given. Again, remember uh, this, uh, this, this man, Isaiah, Again, who we are introduced to in chapter 6. This man who understands himself as a man of unclean lips. A man who is unworthy of the task that he has been given. Again, he feels the weight of proclaiming this word every time he opens his mouth. And so chapter 33 begins with this prayer that he gives to those who are around. Woe to you who plunder though you have not been plundered. And you, you who deal treacherously, though they have not done treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing tre- treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. And there in verse 2, it says, O oh Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning. Our salvation also in the time of trouble. You see the prophet Isaiah here again in this prayer uh, that he is lifting up in the midst of this time of disobedience has as its foundation once again the nature of the covenant God. That this covenant God who had brought their forefathers out of the land of Egypt, this covenant God who had brought Abram out of the land of the Chaldees, uh, this same God who had born with Adam and Eve, even after uh, their sin in the garden, this same God is the one who is proclaiming this word to Judah. And he is known here as uh, this God who is gracious, this God who is the God of salvation in the time of trouble. Again, Isaiah here, as he brings us to verse 20, uh, to the scripture lesson that we read is, is, is drawing the people once more to remember that in this time of trouble, in this time of unbelief, in this time of great idolatry, that they are not to forget who their God is. Now, as those who live on this side of the cross, those of us who live in 2018, of course, we know what happens in Judah. We know that there are periods of reform under Hezekiah, that there's a period of reform under Josiah, but ultimately in the days of Jeconiah, the people of God will go into exile in Babylon, having not heeded the words of the prophets. Of course, you remember the words of Jesus Christ in the parable of the Vinedresser as he reminds the Jews that God had many times sent them prophets. And what had they done to the prophets but ignored them, cast them away, and killed them? Now God, again, in his mercy here in Isaiah 33, is giving a word of comfort to the faithful, to those who will heed the word of warning, who will turn from their sin and rest in the mercy of the covenant God. And as we begin here in verse 20, again, remember that the purpose and and the main uh, point of this sermon is the kingship of Jesus Christ. And as we look uh, through these verses again, we'll see how that kingship applies not only to the days of Isaiah, but applies to the church in our own day. That the kingship of Christ is our comfort, is our peace. That trusting alone in the King of Kings and seeking rest alone in Him is the only answer for the troubles that face us from day to day, especially as we look out unto the world around us and see nothing but idolatry and wickedness and evil and any number of things that cause us uh, to question, again, the nature of the promises of God. So again, let us turn there to verse 20 and notice again where uh, the prophet begins in giving this word of comfort to the people. He says, look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. Again, this word Zion is one that is near and dear to the hearts of believers. Again, it's a word that has always been near and dear to believers. Again, consider Psalm 48 where the psalmist there says, Walk about Zion, go all around her, count her towers, mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God forever and ever, and he will be our guide even to death. And Psalm 46, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. And of course, as we turn to the New Testament again, remember the nature of the purpose of this Zion in the comfort that Christ gives to his disciples. Remember, as he is preparing to go on to Jerusalem, we have this verse which is well known to us, especially in the spring of the year. In John twelve fifteen, it says, "Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt." Again, the nature of the promise that we see here in Isaiah thirty three ultimately, of course, is in the nature of Christ as our Zion, and of course, of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ being the Zion, being this place. Of refuge, this place of peace, this place that we are told here that we will not only see the appointed feasts, but we will see a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. So again, as we consider the kingship of Christ and as we consider how that kingship is a blessing unto us, again, we begin here with the church over which Christ is king. And as we look upon the nature of the church and of the history of the church, what do we see? And we see in the New Testament as that church is established by Christ himself. And we often speak uh, when we hear missionaries uh, talk about the Great Commission. And we see there in Matthew 28 as our Lord gives these words to his disciples. And what does he tell them to do? To go out unto the nations, preaching Christ and doing what? Making disciples and baptizing men and women in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now when we hear this language of discipleship and of baptism, of course we who are Presbyterians, we who understand the nature of covenant relations between the generations Again, understand that we do not baptize people into thin air. That when we baptize someone, they're just not uh, baptized in kind of a general reality. That people are baptized into the body of Christ, into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we baptize people, again, we're not baptizing them into some ephemeral thing, but into the visible church, into the very a church that Christ has established on the earth. And so when we make vows as congregations, when we baptize a child or we baptize an adult convert, what is one of the promises that we make? That we will help lead them, disciple them, nurture them, and grow them in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we see in this covenant baptism, in this testimony of the visible church, that we see there the kingship of Christ. The king, the king who is head over the church. The king who has made this promise. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down nor one, not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. Now again, when we consider the history of the church after Matthew 28, what's the unfortunate reality that we see? The unfortunate reality we see is that the visible church often can let down the people of God. You know, we see throughout church history that there are ways of apostasy in the body of Christ, in the visible church. We see churches which claim the name of Christ but have nothing to do with the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, we see this in the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. and We hear of uh, the church, for example, uh, at at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus is well known uh, for its doctrinal purity. Jesus commends them for hating the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Remember what uh, Jesus did not speak well of Ephesus about. That they had forgotten their first love. And when we hear that, what do we to understand that they have forgotten? They had forgotten the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the first love of the body of Christ. And so as we see this promise in Isaiah uh, thirty-three twenty Again, we are to be reminded that ultimately this promise of Zion, this promise of of this city, this quiet home, is ultimately not in those things made with men's hands, but in the very nature of the king of kings himself. That we are to be reminded once more that our hope lies not in brick and mortar, but that our hope lies in the creator of the heavens and the earth. And we see again the nature of this a body, this daughter of Zion, this glorious testimony that we have in the word of our God of the nature of our king. Not only is he there in verse 20, the king over the church, but in verse 21 we see something about the nature of that church. It says, but there the majestic Lord will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships Pass by. And then skip to verse 23: Your tackle is loosed, they cannot strengthen their mast, they cannot spread the sail, then the prey of great plunder is divided, the lame take the prey. Again, what is Isaiah getting to here, speaking of the frustration of the enemies of the city of God? For that's what's being spoken of here these marauders who have been coming into the, city, into the city of God, these marauders which have been plundering, that we heard of in the prayer at the beginning of chapter 33. Again, what does it mean that these men will be stopped, that their mass will not strengthen, that they cannot spread the sail, that they cannot do these things? Again, what is Isaiah thinking of? What he's thinking of here again is of the promise that Christ gives to the church that no matter what Satan does, no matter what the enemies of the church will do, the promise is as the gates will not what? They will not fall to the king of this world. But the king of kings will win the victory at the end of days. Again, we hear in these words uh, an echo Uh, later on in the Bible in Revelation 19. Of course, Revelation 19 is that great testimony of where we see Christ come on the white horse. We see him with his sword laying waste to the enemies of God. Remember the description there of Jesus in Revelation 19. What does he have on his thigh? But the very words, King of Kings. And what do we see in that battle? That the fight is not just against Satan and his minions, but against all those who had allied themselves with Antichrist. All those who had allied themselves with the beast. And what happens to all who had taken the side of wickedness? Well, they are all cast into the lake of fire. Again, what's important to remember there in Revelation 19 Is in in the fact of this King of Kings that he is Lord not only over the church, but he is Lord over the nations as well. Again, when we hear the testimony there that the kings who allied themselves with the beast will be cast into the pit, it's important to remember there who those kings are. Again, they're not just kind of ephemeral things, It's, it's not just kind of a type, but it's speaking there quite literally of those who are leaders in the civil kingdom, that they have a responsibility, as it says in Psalm 2, to bow the knee, that they have a responsibility to kiss the son, lest he be angry. And what does it mean, do you think, for civil rulers to kiss the son, to bow the knee? Well, what does that look like? What is? What are you doing when you bow a knee? Okay, we usually think of that in the context of King's, with how men would come before the throne of a king and bow their knee. And what would they do when they were bowing their knee? Well, they would bend their head over and expose their neck. And what was that meant to symbolize? It meant to symbolize, first of all, that they were subordinate to the king, that they were not greater to the king, and that they were not equal to the king. And in bending their head, it said that they placed their trust in, In the king, that they were willing to face his wrath uh, due to them if they had been unfaithful to the king. And so, what we see here in the testimony of verse 21 and verse 23 is likewise a testimony to the church uh, that the quiet home that we have been promised uh, comes with it a warning to the nations. You ever wonder why in 1 Timothy chapter 2? that the Apostle Paul enjoins Timothy and us to pray for those in authority over us, to pray for the leaders of our nations. Well, of course, we follow that with those words that state to us so that we can live peaceably. Now, what do you think does it mean for a Christian to live peaceably? Well, first of all, it means that we are allowed to gather together on the Lord's Day, gather together in the church, worship the Lord Jesus Christ without being in fear that the civil authorities are going to bust through that door, arrest the preacher, throw him in jail, and throw all of us out onto the streets. That's what is being understood there in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And what happened because of the faithful prayers of the saints in the time of Paul? Now, did it happen immediately? Did it happen in that generation? Did it happen in the following generation? Well, no. But what we see because of the faithful prayers of those uh, saints, we see that it did come to pass in the providence of God uh, that the yoke of the Roman Empire was taken off of the church and they were given a place of peace within the empire. Again, this is what we see here in the promise of Isaiah 33. That we who are uh, under the authority of the king of kings, we who are under the spiritual authority of this great and glorious uh, uh, king over all the earth, have within that promise that we are to pray that those who are in authority over us will allow us to proclaim Christ and him crucified without fear and without concern of our physical lives. Again, this is one of the reasons why, again, as I share with the children, we have those names in our denominational title. Again, Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. Again, we believe that the state has a responsibility to honor Christ the King, that they have a responsibility to allow the church to, again, preach the word and to do so, again, without a fear of reprisal. And this is the promise that we see here in Isaiah 33, uh, that we will see that day in the future. And of course, we've seen that through periods of history. But why usually does uh, the church lose that place in lands where it used to have it? Well, it's because uh, just as in Ephesus, the church has forgotten its first love. It has turned away from Christ, has turned away uh, from his kingship, turned away from his authoritative word, and embraced worldliness, embraced uh, sin, embraced those things that Christ has called us not to embrace. And as part of his judgment on the church, he removes uh, that uh, providential peace and allows the enemies of God to come in. And again, that's exactly what happens to Judah. So, what exactly happens uh, to the nations uh, uh, in the north, uh, in the tribes of the north. When they abandon the right worship of God, when they abandon uh, the right faith that they have been given, uh, God gives them over to a season uh, and eventually, of course, what happens to the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms. Well, we see Jesus Christ himself come uh, in uh, the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, come to suffer and to die. And what do we see as one of the outcroppings of the promise that we have in Jesus Christ? Well, you see in Romans chapter 11, uh, verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Again, one of the things that's important for us to always remember about the nature of our God is that He works in His time, and He works for His purpose, and He works for His glory. And so as we see these promises in Isaiah 33, we can look around us and wonder again if they are true. Again, is it the case uh, that Zion is a quiet home? Is it the case uh, that Zion will not have any of its states removed? And these are questions that come to us from day to day, especially as we live in this day and age where we see a growing uh, wickedness within uh, those who claim the name of Christ. Not only seeing churches forgetting their first love, but we see churches, for example, embracing Jezebel, uh, much uh, as uh, the church uh, had done in the book of Revelation. Again, what is the constant call of Christ in those letters to the churches in Revelation? Again, the call is simple and straightforward. Just as it has been in his earthly ministry. It was repent and believe. Turn from your evil ways. Rest and trust in my gracious gift. Rest and trust in the promise that I have given to you. And you will see this time of turmoil, this time of evil, this time of discipline on the church taken away. And so brothers and sisters, as we again uh, consider these words from Isaiah 33, as we consider the nature of the King of Kings, of the Lord of Lords, again hear these words in verse 24. And the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. This is the message of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came and died for sinners. That Jesus Christ came and died to bring the dead to life. To bring those who have been exiled back into the Holy Place, back into Zion itself. And so as we hear these words from Isaiah 33, as we again consider the nature of, God's, of Christ's kingship upon the church and upon the state, again, we are reminded once more that these things are accomplished not by the works of men's hands, not by the works of the flesh, but by the works of the Spirit. And if we are to see in our day revival, if we are to see in our day reformation, and it must begin at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it must begin here within the walls of this church. So the walls of all the churches in our nation. For how can we expect unbelievers uh, to come and to turn away from their idols if we ourselves are not willing to do so. And so again as we are comforted once more by the place of the Lord Jesus Christ over the heavens and the earth. As we are comforted once more by the eternal promise of the Lord our God in His Son. As we are reminded once more of the blessings that we have in the gospel itself. That Christ, dead for sinners, has come to call His sheep unto Himself. Again, let us hear what Isaiah preached to the nation of Judah. Let us apply it unto our lives, not only as individuals but as a church and as those who are citizens not only of this earthly kingdom, but more importantly those who are citizens of the country to come, those who are longing for the second coming of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, where he will come in judgment. And he will speak these words here that the people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. Brothers and sisters, let us rest in the glory of our God, and in the promise of His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we again give thanks once more that Your Son is King over all things, that He is the one to whom all are to give obedience and faith. Dear God, we pray that You would give the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, the strength, the perseverance, and the love for others to share your good news uh, with friends and with family, that we may all uh, see, again, all come to faith in your Son. And in his name we pray. Amen.